And welcome back, kids, to another unbelievably stunning episode of On Stage, Off Stage. I am your host, George Sapio, and our guest this week is renowned playwright, screenwriter, Angela Gant. Uh, Angela's uh, play, The Body of Ava Perone, will be performed up at the Morgan Opera House in Aurora, New York, as the winner of the Gloria Ann Barnell Peter Playwright Competition. And, uh, another play of hers, Social Darwinism, was recently published by Samuel French. And uh, we welcome Angela to our show. Welcome, Ange. Hey, thanks, George. I appreciate the intro. No uh, I can't take full full credit for the body of Ava Perot, and that that show is actually co-written with uh, 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 writer Bill Unfeed. Um, okay, well, um, one of those... yeah, tell us a little bit about the play. What's it about? And is there a body of Ava Perot, and what happens to it? Uh, it actually, it is based on uh, historical evidence, and when Bill and I. Bill approached me about a writing project, and I let him pick from, you know, like 10 topics because I'm just an idea machine. And I was like, what do you want to write about? And he picked the body of Ava Perone, which historically, uh, what actually happened to the body, and this is where a Vita kind of ends. At the very end, they sort of mentioned that the body went missing for like 15 or 20 years. Well, um, it really did. Um, well, and people stole their body. Well, people stole it. Some guy had it in his attic for a while. He's part of the Secret Service, and he really liked it. Uh, some other guy was guarding it and, like, wait, 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 wait. shot his wife accidentally. He had it in yeah, his he attic because he really liked That sounds really sick. Well, he did have it in his attic, and actually that's how he got caught is showing it off to a friend in his attic. Um, and it was in a box marked radio parts when they refound it. Um, and they kept moving it and hiding it all over the place because they were afraid people were going to worship it um, because she was Santa Evita. Wasn't it kind uh, of thing. decomposed at a certain point? No, she... she was actually um, the guy rumored to have embalmed Lennon, also embalmed Eva Perone at a process in a private laboratory. Um, and supposedly she still looks pretty perfect to this day. She was embalmed four separate times. Um, and the body is supposed to be pretty much, uh, perfect, uh, almost wax figure perfect. It's, uh, pretty terrifying actually. Um, and I always thought it was interesting because the music, the musical cuts off and it's just like, oh, and then the body went missing for 16 years and that's the end of our show. Y'all, y'all come back now. Where we do, what we do is we pick up, um, not with all these strange things of the body going here and there and everywhere. Uh, what we do is we pick up uh, where the body was delivered, um, and they didn't know what to do with it. And the president at the time, I believe, was named Lemus of Argentina, and he decided to send it to Juan Perón, not knowing where else to send it. So the place starts in Madrid, in Spain, with um, the body showing up at uh, ex-president Perón's house with his current wife there. And um, there are yeah, it's a you know historically true and an interesting jumping off point. Um, Dr. Ara was called in to check out the body, which he was still in love with. Um, he visited Ava every day for three years while she was in the um, 
you know, the presidential palace, right. um, right. At, even after after uh, Juan Perón was deposed, he still would go visit her body every day. Actually, he was visiting her before she died, so the minute she died, he was ready to go to involve that body. He was really excited about it. Um, okay. He's actually my comic relief character. Um, I happen to like uh, the character we created for Dr. Ara. It is kind of strange writing for people that are, um, in one case, still alive, which is Isabel Perón. Um, uh, they were talking about deporting her from Spain to face war crimes, actually, that she committed in Argentina mm. during her rule. Um, but we, we, we touch on that only a tad bit at the end. Right. But, so, wait, but, okay. um, so the body just showed up at Juan Perón's house? Uh, well, they mailed it, uh, and they they sent a letter. They wait, they they mailed it. I'm sure it was like special postal service delivery, but yeah, they they mailed it and it okay, arrived. Cause, cause, and Ange, I work for the post office. Right. Well, I, I don't know that they sent it from the U.S. post office. I'm pretty sure it was Argentinian. I, I mean, post I haven't office. seen any bodies come through our local post office. I mean. How do you mail, well, whatever, but how do you mail a body? You know, I think you can mail about anything, uh, probably back in the day. Because every time I go in, they always ask me, do I have anything liquid, perishable, flammable, anything like that? They didn't, should they, do you have any dead rulers in the box or something? You know, you know what, I think they failed to ask that question. Or even if they did, if the president's sending it out, you just don't ask, is there a dead body in the box? You know. Um, I think it should be a standard question. Well, then perhaps I'll add it now, considering the play. But okay. um, at the time, you know. Yeah, so Juan, Juan shows up. Um, so the play's a... Um, it was historically based, like I said, and Bill and I agreed on the topic. And uh, basically, we did a very unusual process when we came up with the structure of the piece, which is what I've known for is Aristotelian structuralism. So I structured the play of what we wanted to happen. And then we went back. And the nice thing about structuring a play is um, you're writing point to point. So you never write yourself in a box and um, you always know where you're going. Because if you get lost, you look at the outline and go, I'm writing to this point. Okay, so for our um, listeners who don't know Aristotelian structuralism, can you give us a uh, crash course on that? Yeah, yeah. It, you know what? To make it really easy, uh, my PhD is in it, so I, uh, it's a particular specialization. If you want to know what it really means, it means the way we tell stories in the West. That's it. Go ahead and save yourself a lot of money. You don't need a PhD. There's a certain way we still tell stories in the West, and we've done it the same since... Um, you know, uh, Grecian times. So, you know, which is if you have a well-written play or you watch a movie or anything from entertainment, the, the idea is if it's, if it's well-written, everything in that play moves forward, either plot, character, thought, diction, spectacle, music, whatever. Right. Those are your components. But primarily, everything in the play needs to be there. So when you have people that are really good at, say, guessing the ending of movies and guessing the ending of plays, well, um, we already know the structure, so we already know what's going to happen logistically as Americans because it's the way we tell stories. Right. A comedy is going to end happy. If it doesn't end happy, we're going to get cranky. 
but sometimes we're pleasantly surprised by like Little Miss Sunshine, where you know you expect the girl to be a little rock star at the end, and she's not. She's terrible. You know, the grandfather died. You know, and they end up at the police department at the end, and all this stuff. And it's much more realistic, but it's still very funny. Exactly. Whereas yeah. if it was a typical American piece, you know, the girl would have been outstanding and she would have won all the awards and, you know, kudos to everybody. And formulaic and, nonsense that we're all, we've all been, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the way, um, you know, screenplays are typically written. It's right. in a three-act structure, uh, kind of like a well-made play. Um, and, you know, you hit certain points. Um, I've written many screenplays. Um, and, you know, what you're doing... Basically, you have less freedom with a screenplay than you do with a play, but you're trying to hit all the points that people want, but you still want to make it as interesting as possible in between those points. Like there's an expectation, you know, that, you know, for one, you're going to have conflict. You're not going to have a play without conflict because that's really boring. Well, uh, and it was yeah. done once. Uh, you know, it's like Godot did it. Okay, we, and it was an amazing, iconic piece. It doesn't need to be redone because somebody wrote a play that's vertical. You know, every exactly, other play is yeah. horizontal. They need to go somewhere. Um, even imagistic plays, plays that are just images, and or you know, they give you little pieces of stories. They're they're oriented by theme. Um, they could be episodic. It's just little chunks. You know, sure, yeah. chunks of show. And that's, what is that? It's a sitcom. Okay, so all these elements are actually borrowed from theater. Um, and it's it's from how we Aristotle, tell stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay, when, so uh, you guys put together Eva Perone with Aristotelian structuralism, and you knew where you were going with it. What's it, what's it like co-writing yeah. with somebody? Have you ever done that before? Um, Ava was the first time Bill and I co-wrote, and we only happened to co-write because Bill said, hey, you want to write a play together, and um, I'd never actually considered writing something with someone, but Bill was highly intelligent, um, and I, you know, and I knew him to be a good uh, academic writer, um, and I was like, what the hell, you know, it, it might be fun. Um, we've co-written pretty much all screenplays since then. We only co-wrote the one play together, and we broke it up very interestingly. Um, and I don't know that we would duplicate the process, but it, it turned out very interesting. Where we have, we only have five characters in the show, so we have Juan Perón and Rega. Uh, Rega was a spiritualist and a grifter, um, and uh, he, in, in real life, um, he was actually died in the 80s, I think, in the U.S. in prison. Um, and he basically ran the country when Isabel was uh, president after Perón died, which takes place after our play, because um, okay. we don't go into her reign. Um, but in real life, he was a spiritual grifter. You know, he yeah, he was a con man of every kind, and really interesting one too. So Bill wrote the two guys. I wrote um, um, sorry, Isabel. Um, and it's really more or less her story because she starts as the stupid kind of blonde and becomes like more like Ava and really kind of becomes Ava, even looks like Ava by the end of the play because Ava is training her, which I'll explain Ava in a second. And uh, Dr. Ara, who's my comic relief character, um, you know, everybody needs a Rose Nyland or a Phoebe from Friends. Um, sure. 
you know, it's a, it's an archetypal comedy character. Oh, full um, comedy. It's, yeah. it's a little it's a little tougher to do with the necrophiliac, but you know, it can be made funny. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, uh, necrophilia is is can be an extremely funny uh, subject. For those of you uh, just listening in, we're talking with uh, Angela Gant. This is on stage, off stage. I am George Sapio, and lucky you—you you turned in while we're talking about necrophilia. Ange, please continue. Right. So, um, Bill wrote those two characters. I wrote. Uh, uh, he wrote Juan Peron and Rega, uh, the spiritual grifter. I wrote Isabel Peron, who ended up running uh, the country the way Ava supposedly, quote unquote, should have, and uh, Dr. Ara, who is our favorite necrophiliac, because. He fell in love with Ava's dead body, which, I, to his credit, a lot of people did fall in love with her dead body. I have no idea why. Uh, in fact, in real life, uh, when she was at the house in Madrid, this isn't in the play, but in real life, they would prop the body up and have people over for dinner. Um, you know, Juan Perón would have Isabel lay on her body to absorb her energies. I didn't feel the need to put that in the play, but um, that that is real life as opposed to fiction. Okay, so real life things to strange. prop her body up at the dinner table. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? You've got this beautiful dead body sitting there of, you know, Santa Evita. You know, it's taking up space. I figure you use it for your party guests. Did they serve uh, food to her? You know, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know if they serve food on her, actually. You know, she could, who knows? Uh, I've heard of doing body yeah. shots, but we're getting into some really weird territory here. Yeah, yeah, you know, you'd probably get an extra boost from all that crap that was in her body to make her basically waxing and perfect. Um, Honey, so pass in our the play, Ava. Uh, huh? Pass the, Ava, pass the salt. <laughs> She's so lazy. I mean, she never does anything. She just lays around the house. Um, of course, in the play, we had to make Ava, uh, or we chose to make Ava a character, um, Evita. And so she manipulates the other characters into going back to Argentina and uh, reclaiming um, the presidency and reclaiming her. Basically, she creates Isabel in her own image uh, to to play the role that she always wanted to play, which was the president of Argentina. Mm. Um, so she individually, you know, comes alive to these characters, sans Juan Perón. So um, Bill and I took turns writing Ava, depending on who else. If one of my characters was in the scene, if I was writing Dr. Ara, he was writing Ava. If uh, Rega was, you know, in the scene, I was writing Ava while he was writing Rega. Uh, you obviously but, yeah, enjoyed was... this process. You guys have done a couple of more screenplays after this, right? I mean, you're trading back and forth. That that's That's got to be quite an experience. Well, you know, I will say um, writing with Bill really changed the way I write in the sense of if I co-write, I probably write at four times the speed than if I write by myself. Because one, you're meeting. Okay, we live in different states, so we have to talk by phone. Um, basically, we jump on a computer and we use to go to my PC. We did it at the time anyway. And so you're both interfaced on the same computer at the same time. Right. And you don't have time to waste anybody's time. So you're set down to write for three hours. You're writing. And the minute you're not writing, probably your co-writer is writing. Oh, I have this idea. Oh, no, that's terrible. Here, try this. No, this is, oh, this is so good. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Okay, wait, let me jump in. You know, so you end up, you know, going back and forth. Um, 
and the speed at which you're turning stuff out because you you no longer have like I don't know how to put this or write it or whatever. Somebody's going to write through that, and then you're going to go back and you're going to fix it. It's sure. like let's just write through right. it so we can get to the next part. So I would say writing with Bill like increased my speed exponentially, and it's one of the reasons we did screenplays together is because we could write them very very quickly. Sure. Um, I, and, and, and there were there were no personality differences with this, no creative dilemmas that you guys ran into, differences of opinion that that couldn't be worked out. Uh, actually, no, um, because what we generally did is we met. I would usually fly to Colorado. We would meet for about three days, and we would discuss whatever it is we were writing, um, and then we would hammer out every piece of the. You know, you say people go, oh, writing by outline, ooh, you know, that's not creative. Well, I, let me tell you, I've written things romantically. Um, Social Darwinism, I actually wrote romantically at the first draft, and yeah, uh, it's 103 pages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you have to drop, a, I had to drop 100 pages because it was crap. And when you write by structuralism, you're already hammering things out as you go. Oh, I want this to happen. Now it'd be better if this would happen. What if this happened in the end? What if we do a reversal here? Which is a reversal is the coolest thing that can happen to an audience. And it's it's an Aristotelian word, but basically what it means is you totally see something coming. Only that thing that you saw coming that was so obvious doesn't happen. Something right. else happens. But it's absolutely logical that the other thing happened. But it throws you off base, and it's really cool. And um, it's really hard to do as well. But um, well, it's really it well, fantastic. Sure, yeah. I mean, otherwise it could turn into a gimmick that kind of falls flat, and that does nobody any good. Finding a good reversal is, I mean, Hitchcock did that brilliantly. The Cohen brothers used to do that brilliantly, but uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, I mean, and well, you know, so did uh, uh, what's his name, Full Metal Jacket, and uh, Clockwork Orange. Uh, oh, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick was really good at it too. Uh, and actually, Hitchcock messed with your mind on archetypes, so I think he was actually on a Jungian level. You know, birds are supposed to be happy, fun things, and um, it's your evil character. Well, you're messing with somebody on two different levels. So I think that guy was an absolute genius because – and he may not even have been conscious of what he was doing at the time. And, you know, Aristotle will tell you the best writer in the world at the time was, uh, you know, um, Sophocles, okay, who wrote okay. Oedipus. And, uh, you know, he uses Oedipus as the example of the ultimate play with the ultimate reversal because he's told he's going to, you know, kill his dad and sleep with his mom. And he's like, mm -hmm. no, I'm not. So he leaves town and then he does those exact things. And that's your reversal. Well, the thing is, is like, is Aristotle brilliant? Well, you know, it's not that he wrote the play that was the most amazing play ever. He just said, he identified it and said, this is a really good play. Let me tell you why it's so amazing. So really, he ended up being a really good critic, you know, yeah. instead mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, people treat Aristotle as though he's some kind of, um, you know, deity and um, or demigod. Uh, he's, and he's, he's used a lot. And I've, I've taught him, I usually lead off my basic playwriting classes with uh, coverage of Aristotle's poetics and, and the six different elements of drama. 
and uh, he seems to nail most of the general stuff down pretty well, even though I disagree with him on plot and character and the order of importance he puts those in. But uh, he was the first one who actually sat down and codified the, uh, the whole business. But the interesting thing is, by, by saying that, and I totally agree with you, George, but by saying that, you also agree that we haven't changed the way we still tell stories in 2,400 years. Mm, or it still can... wouldn't be applicable. I mean, because he's right. If you want, if you want to follow the rules of Aristotle, uh, you're generally speaking going to have a pretty good play. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you will, but a lot of really good plays do have the elements that he talks about relatively in the same order. And, you know, you can learn a lot about structure from Aristotle. I mean, obviously, that's my, my particular, uh, one of my particular things. But I think you're right to teach basic class, start with the poetics. I mean, sure. it's yeah. really written very simply for you to get. It's great to introduce the concepts that, you know, budding playwrights need to know about because people want to write a story. They don't know how to you know write a story and they end up writing a story that has no structure to it. Once you give them the elements of structure, they can start hanging their bits and pieces on this, um, which is, of course, Aristotelian structuralism. Right, which is exactly what the, uh, what makes what can make a really good play or a really good screenplay or a really mm -hmm. good any number of things. Um, I will tell you, you know, one of the most amazing things about the Greeks to me is, yeah, I mean, I think Oedipus, uh, when it was revived, I think in the 80s uh, on Broadway, and it was done uh, with an all-black cast, and um, they had it as a kind of a Southern Baptist spiritual feeling from the chorus, you know, when they were singing and, uh, you know, it, it was like, uh, I think it was called Oedipus, Oedipus at Columbus, yeah. And um, it, it was, you know, I saw it on video, of course, but it was absolutely moving and stunning, but it had to be remade the way it was. But you look at a play like Lysistrata, which is, you know, Aristophanes, and here's the thing between drama and comedy. Comedy can remain absolutely relevant if it's written well, well beyond its time. And Liz Estrada is one of those plays. I saw it before we went to war in the Gulf War, and, you know, it was a funny big joke play. Right. You know, it's like people are running around with phalluses, and the guys are really horny, and the girls are like, we're not going to have sex with anybody until you guys quit going to war, because, of course, Greek was made up with, Greece was made up with a bunch of city-states. Exactly. You know, it wasn't really yeah. a country. So um, they're like, no more sex. Well, when you – there was something called the Liz Estrada Project that happened right before we went to, um, you know, our, our last uh, war. And it was – I think – I can't even remember. It was like – over 100 countries in all 50 states in the U.S., did a reading on Monday night of Liz Estrada. Yeah. Um, it was worldwide. I do know that, yeah. And, you know, it, it was basically saying, hey, don't go to war. Like, look at the price of war. And suddenly this goes from being a 2,400-year-old dick joke to being something that's beyond that. You know, it's, it has a deeper meaning. And it's, you can get away with the deeper meaning because it's a comedy. Mm -hmm. sure. Because it's not in your face. It's not shouting at you. It's not, you know, it's not pictorial. It's yes. not. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Whereas if you have a comedy, you can do a lot more. You know, you catch more flies with honey. Exactly. Which is, you yeah. know, why I I prefer writing comedy personally, um, because you can push boundaries further and do a lot more with it. Which is, uh, you know, what I tried to do with social Darwinism. Well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about social Darwinism. That's a that's a play with a rather strong political thrust to it, and it looks looks at humankind from, I guess, since we were apes. Uh, those of you who believe in that sort of thing, uh, which we do, and uh, all the way through to present day, but it pretty much skewers humanity. Uh, what was behind writing that one? Um, social Darwinism was actually um, probably one of my first full lengths. And I was sitting there, and you never know when inspiration is going to strike you. This is one of the problems uh, with inspiration. Is I was sitting there, and I was listening to this guy drone on. And it was final, so everybody's giving final project that I'd already given mine. And, like, this guy is, like, the worst actor, director everything, you know, so I know it's his day and I'm come up and I have nothing with me. So I'm not going to take any notes on what he has to say, um, as my little, you know, silent retribution. And, um, he said something about, uh, Darwin. And I was like, man, what if there was social Darwinism, not knowing that this is a real concept at the time. <laughs> and so, um, I was like, oh my God, I can see the whole play now. You know, it starts out with chimpanzees, and then we go to rednecks, and then we go to, like, you know, 1950s middle class, and we go to upper class, and we go back to chimps. And I have nothing to write on. I do have a pen, and I can't find anything to write on. So finally, I pull out a traffic ticket that I was lucky enough to get that day. Thank you very much, Olympic Police Department. And uh, so I wrote down the entire structure of that play uh, on the back of a traffic ticket. Wait, you wrote down the entire structure of a play on the back of a traffic ticket. I did while I was bored. Uh, that way it kept me from being bored listening to this guy. But, uh, yeah, because I I got the whole thing in like a giant flash. So I was like, okay, we have rednecks. It was like, and, you know, later I fleshed it out to where, okay, we go from chimpanzees to rednecks, and then there's a transition into that, and then we transition. I was like, what's rednecky? I was like, oh, we transition into a wrestling match. And then it was 1950s middle class because there's nothing that could be more white bread than 1950s middle class. It's okay to laugh at rednecks. Donna Reed show, yes, yeah. It's yeah, it's it's perfectly fine to laugh at white trash rednecks. That's that's great, you know, and nobody minds. And it's perfectly fine to laugh at the 1950s middle class because we're better than those people, right? So. You know, uh, that ends in a really racist, misogynistic, homophobic game show. And one of my favorite things that happens usually in productions that I've seen of it um, is that the audience laughs all the way through the game show. You know, your 40-year-old, 50-year-old white audience laughs all the way through this racist, horrible game show. Um, And right before the game show ends, they quit laughing because they realize, wow, I'm a racist, misogynist you know, um, yeah, redneck. homophobic jerk. And yeah. I'm like, yes, you are. But now we're going on to the upper class <laughs> and the court scene, and then we go back to chips. So um, it always seemed to work like clockwork with the audience. And the audience actually enjoyed being manipulated into realizing it. And I, I always found it interesting because uh, if it was announced I was in a production, um, there was a, 
almost every day there would be some group that would come up to me after the play that would be enraged. And um, it sounds you know I, inflammatory, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I one time I had a group of feminists come up to me. How dare I represent women that way? How dare I? And I was like, you know, it's really interesting that you say that, but you didn't seem to have any problem with the racism or the homophobia, you know, and you know, vice versa, you know, uh, people well, not people knowing I'm gay. People have their uh, pet people, peeves, you know. It's it's their their own political agendas and things that they're especially, you know sensitive to exactly but what was interesting about the play is it was equally it was designed to be equally offensive to all those things and i can and to testify the that yes it, it this play offends just about everyone yeah, yeah but, but you know what it's it was written i mean because i i did a lot of training as an actor um i i don't i don't like to act i'm supposedly good at it um uh, but I did a lot of training as an actor because I wanted to be an actor's playwright and a director's playwright. And part of my idea behind this was I've never wanted to write a role that anybody wouldn't be happy to play. They're like, yes. And so every character in that play, you know, has a ton of stage time and they go through a complete cycle. You know what I mean? They yes. get to go from chimpanzee to the upper class. They get to play everything they ever wanted to play in a character. You know what I mean? Um, so it really stretches the actor. And you've got 10 people on stage during almost the whole play. So you've got a director who's got to really be able to see formula-wise what to do with all these actors and how to keep everything interactive. The dialogue's interactive. But then the director also gets to have fun with the process and fun with the actors and make it his or her really their own. I mean, I've had it be my own because it was a playwright and I got to be involved in the first production. And after that, once it's published, like it's published by Samuel French, you can look it up, Social Darwinism by Angela Gantz. Go pay eight ninety five, and you too can own a copy. Worth um, every penny. But it's, 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 thank you. I didn't know if it was worth it with shipping and handling. I don't know what they charge. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I got to say, there was a production that happened in California, and I was I was sad that uh, I didn't get to see it because it's the most recent production, but um, I found out about it too late. You know, people, people don't realize that playwrights, as playwrights, um, you know, we do travel and we do have to go places and see things and do things. And, you know, sometimes if you contact the playwright and just say, hey, I'm doing a production of one of your shows, um, we'll show up for well, free. I, I, I would think that... Just because if, it's entertaining. Yeah, well, I would think that if I'm, if I'm getting a play from Samuel French, that Samuel French would immediately turn around and contact Angela again and say, yeah, by the way, your play is being done by, you know, XYZ company in you know, Lubbock, Texas or wherever. And that's how you'd know about it. But obviously, that doesn't happen too often, or am I misreading you? Well, no, it, it didn't happen that way. Um, what I did, and I recommend this for all playwrights, all writers, actually, who write anything that can be produced, um, you should do what's called a vanity Google at least once every six months, where you Google your name and your plays or your prominent plays that are out there or your shows or whatever, um, and make sure that no one has done your play um, because it's the Internet and there's going to be a web page left where they did it and they say they did it. 
And then you can go back to that person and say, mm, you owe me money because you owed me royalties because you did my play without permission. Yeah. Um, you know, and actually that's how the Dramatist Guild is useful if you're a member. costs like 90 bucks a year to join them. But if you don't want to go hassle somebody, um, which I don't like to be the bad guy, uh, the Dramatist Guild will do it for you. <laughs> so if your royalties are more than 90 bucks, uh, I just recommend letting them do it. <laughs> I do it sporadically when I need their attorney. Right. <laughs> I'm like, and suddenly I need to join the guild again. Um, well, the Dramatist Guild is, is a remarkable, remarkable organization, and they do unbelievable amounts of good for uh, playwrights and such. And if you are a playwright out there, I heartily recommend joining them now. Go do it. Write the check. Uh, uh, give me your credit card. It's worth it. Uh, they will look after you. They will back you up. And that, Gary Garrison, is my ad for Dramatist Guild. Back to Angela Gant. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to throw Gary a bone to you and say he's uh, he's done an amazing job with the Guild and keeping it really friendly and keeping it really simple. And plus, they also publish once a year, unlike, uh, you know, the whatever the other magazine is. But once a year, as a member, you get a copy of every single playwriting contest and yes. mm-hmm. places to go to produce plays and everything. You get a copy of that every year. And that's totally worth your money right there. Um, I know because I vetted it one year, and uh, I, I can tell you that's an awful lot of <laughs> when I first moved to New York, and Gary was like, you're not doing anything. Come here. Come, come vet this little book for me. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't uh, know, and, uh, Gary Garrison is a uh, well-respected, well-known remarkably talented playwright. He has also been um, the head chief cook and bottle washer, muckety-muck, of the uh, Dramatist Guild for the past number of years and has labored for thousands and thousands of hours to make this uh, organization uh, the remarkable organization that it has turned out to be. So, uh, And oddly, even though it's called the Dramatist Guild, it's not a union, which some people are confused by. So it's not like you have to, you just have to be a playwright to join. It's not necessarily, you know, that that you have to get past a union or anything like that. Um, But, you know, sometimes I think the name confuses people. It confused my my co-writer. He was like, I don't know about this union thing. I'm like, oh, they're not a union. He was like, oh, no, they sound like a union. I'm like, they're not. (laughs) <laughs> so he gave him 90 bucks and joined. You know, he was like, oh, well, if I could just join, sure. I was like, yeah, you're a playwright, there you have joined. Yeah, there we go. So um, pretty simple stuff. But, yeah, social Darwinism, um, it managed to win a couple of national awards from the Kennedy Center, um, the American College Theater Festival. Um, I won two national awards that year. The biggest one was, uh, believe it or not, it has the lamest name. It's called the um, Student Playwriting Award. Um, and I also won the Paula Bogle Award, but the Student Playwriting Award allowed me to go to Sundance. So I went to the Sundance Theater Lab where I got to hang out for three weeks with a bunch of A-listers. And um, it's really cool because it's enclosed. Nobody's allowed in or out. No producers are allowed in or out. It's just six playwrights writing with an A-list group of actors and directors and crag dramaturgs, and they have three weeks to make their plays shine. And it's a really amazing experience. Um, I thought it was totally cool, and I'd never heard of Sundance. I, I felt like a redneck hick when they called me. They're like, they, they call me from D.C., and they tell me I've won these awards, and they're like, yeah, and you get to go to Sundance, and I'm like, what's that? And they're like, you are kidding, and I'm like, uh, you, you do realize you're calling Lubbock, Texas, correct? 
Um, so yeah, I um, I learned that uh, there's it's strange because being a Texas playwright and being a New York playwright, it's exactly the same except the zip code changes and so does your prominence. So um, it's just because you live in New York City now you're a New York playwright. Um, you have the cachet. We've only got a few minutes left for this. Um, so tell all of our listeners how, where, when uh, the body of Eva Perone is going to be shown, how they can get tickets, and uh, all the good stuff, because we all want to go see this now. Um, well, it's being produced for the first time. Uh, you will see it as I see it. Um, uh, Susie Easter is the director. It's at the Morgan Opera House in Aurora, New York. Um, and I'm sure you can buy tickets from the Morgan Opera House. They'll be more than pleased to sell them to you. Um, it only runs for two nights. It runs on December 6th and 7th. And um, my uh, co-writer and I will be there actually on the 6th. And uh, we're really looking forward to it. And we're also giving a talk back after after that particular performance. So... Uh, it should be really exciting stuff. Folks, don't miss this show. You will regret it, and all your friends will point at you and laugh. Angela Gant, thank you so very, very, very much uh, for being our guest on On Stage, Off Stage this week. And we wish you great amounts of luck with the show and your future writing. Thank you.